This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Got a fun segment right now. Uh, Well, fun and informative, I should probably say. Dave Jones, that's who we're going to be talking to. He's currently Chief Constable of the New Westminster Police Department. Uh, he's had, he's been in the department, led the department since 2011, uh, began his policing career back in 1982, was a volunteer, and then he became a full-time officer in 1986. Now, this is interesting, Dave, and I know you're on the line, and just yep. hang, hang out there with me for a second. So, worked in a variety of the sections, which I think is really, really interesting and important information. Uh within the police service. So patrol, major crimes, special op unit, drug section, community services, street crimes, as well as part of the joint forces operations uh, in their drug section, operational support unit, and street crimes unit. And I kind of feel like, Dave, you've, you've, you've seen it all. Yeah, it's, and it does feel that way some days. I bet it does. I bet it does. Now, the good news about that is that you have this amazing uh, foundation of experience and knowledge about uh, our specific topic that we're going to talk about with you, and that's financial scams and, and how people can protect themselves. And uh, before we get right into questions, etc., I just... I think I feel like we're living in a different time than we were certainly when you started in the force uh, today. I mean, I just feel like we're really vulnerable. You know, we we are right because what we're looking at here no longer is just this kind of local, if you want to call it local scam going around, someone going door to door trying to sell you something. Now we're talking things that happen on an international level, right? They have it's you know. Who's knocking on your computer or your door, per se, is someone not even in the country. And uh, the stories and, and different methods of trying to imitate um, valid or realistic companies is out there. It's a far more complex. And sometimes you don't even know. Sometimes you don't even know they're accessing you and your information. Well, that's the thing, too, right? We've moved into a digital world, and, uh, you know, people are storing, you know, banking information, personal information out in this, uh, you know, Internet world and digital world, and people are being able to access it and actually create you, become you. Yeah, and, and Dave, I was just, you know, leading towards this segment, I was really thinking, it seems like on a daily basis, um, there's at least some scam that hits my inbox, or I get a robocall, or I get something going on, and, you know, I know to ignore, delete, you know, hang up the phone and things like that, but it's almost on a daily basis, that's what we're looking at these days. And you're correct with that, and it, and no one is immune from it. It happens on a daily basis, all around, on a massive level, and I just use it my own example. Last night, I got a a notice on my email indicating that apparently I was to update uh, an account of mine. <laughs> and I don't have that account with <laughs> exactly. that company, right? And, and, it's, and I certainly don't have it registered. And, and amazing enough, that came to my policing email. Wow. Oh, wow. Not a personal email. That came to the police department. So <laughs> that, those phishing scams aren't limited to just, you know, uh, targeting. It's a wide open blast. And that also makes me think that it's a real robotic kind of uh, machine that's behind that uh, to access somebody like like you, like that's just dumb, right? 
Yeah, and and whether it's just uh, you know running random emails or picking up on emails that are going through the system that are seen as being valid ones, right? Yeah. So you know uh, you know my email and it's pretty simple at the work here, but whether it's copied or seen or you call it fished out of someone else's email box, they know it's a legitimate email, so they're sending it back to they're sending it out to everybody. Who falls victims to the to these scams, Dave? Who who do you tend to see? Is there a certain profile? Is it all walks of life, ages? Well, I would say all walks of life do fall victim to various scams, but in particular, the ones that are of concern um, and probably the more vulnerable groups are um, the seniors that we see in the community in terms of it, who um, I would say trust government organizations that are being imitated now, right. and uh, and also you know, they're a, a very trusting group, right? They they come across with that. And then there's other vulnerable sectors, I would say, that um, uh, have are targeted because they might not be as sophisticated or understanding or have access to resources to help them out to clarify certain things. Well, I think the other part of it, too, is that you just don't know if these people are legit or not. Like, we've, we've come across, and I know Blair has, where uh, if somebody's trying to collect money, for example, the kinds of methods that they use are very intimidating. And if you're a law-abiding citizen and have never had a record of any kind and you pay on time and you you know don't have any parking tickets or speeding tickets, you just automatically think, "Oh my gosh, what what have I done wrong? How can I how can I fix this? I need to fix this immediately." You know, and that you're right on that. And a lot of people now, like some of these scams that are going on, they they're actually becoming, I say, threatening. Uh, a very common very. one that's out there right now is say is the one using the CRA, the yes. Canadian yeah. Revenue. Yeah, we've all seen that. that <laughs> yeah. And people are being told, like, you're going to be arrested, we're going to come, we're going to seize your house, we're going to do this. Now, people are not familiar with that agency um, and how they operate or how the police operate with them is, you know, um, no one's going to come arrest you because you haven't paid your taxes, right? No one's going to make, make threaten to arrest you in case you didn't do it in terms of it. But the issue comes is that they're... The material they're putting out is actually imitates, like letterhead and that. Exactly. And you've got to be even further cautious because they'll give you a phone number to call, which is actually linked to them. Yeah. Can we talk about that specific scam? Because I know I just done a little bit of reading about it because it hit the sort of mainstream media a few weeks back and it was frightening what I heard. Right. And, and so that scam really is playing on people's fears, right? Paying taxes and, and the implications of not paying taxes or doing it right or wrong, and particularly if you make a mistake, scares people in that when they get noticed that, you know, you owe us money and therefore you need to pay right away. Um, I think there's still that whole almost a mythology about, you know, how, you know, the CRA or, of course, in the U.S., we see the Internal Revenue Service as this big, mm-hmm. scary monster, if you want to call it. And, uh, so people become worried as to what's happening, because like, filing taxes is not always as, as easy as what we all think about, right? And so when you get this, you owe me money and you need to do this now or we will come arrest you or do things, that has really been something we've seen here in New West and even the other day talking to a banking institution in another city where a lot of people are coming in and withdrawing money to send to somebody through a money transfer system. So. To you or I, I'm saying that's completely wrong. No one's going to ask you to withdraw cash and send it through a money transfer mm-hmm. system. But to some people, they're also afraid of, say, interacting with the law. The police, they're afraid they don't want the police to come to their house, that they're going to be in some form of trouble. 
And at the end of the day, you know, that we try to drive this, and it's been going out is there's no way the CRA acts in that way. They will send you correspondence. There's no way the police are going to come out and arrest you because you haven't paid your taxes, right, uh, or you owe something in terms of it. And never would there be a cash transaction with a with a government organization like that. So it's difficult because we keep driving that message out there. And then we have to go further to warn them to say, you know, if you're going to ask for something, or if you think something's suspicious or whatever, you know, hang up the phone and call them back. But don't ask for a number from them because right. it's so easy for them to give you a number, which is really ringing beside the person committing the fraud. Exactly. And that's the one that I was uh, thinking about specifically, that that one that, that they have, that they give you a number to call, to call your bank. You need to call your bank. This is the number. And so you call the bank. Or it's not even, they don't even give you the number, but they've already accessed your phone line in some way right. that then uh, they just continue to... Um, disguise themselves as that institution. Yeah, even their caller ID can show oh up as CRA, gosh. right? Oh my yeah. gosh, that <laughs> that's just frightening to me. Uh, I mean, and I'm a pretty knowledgeable, you know, aware person, um, and I get sucked in, and I really have to listen, or I really have to read something before I know for sure this is a scam. And one little one that I always find amusing is when I get the email from CRA, CRA and saying, dear taxpayer, and I thought of all the correspondence I've received from Canada Revenue, they've never said dear, dear taxpayer, taxpayer to me before. Well, and people need to understand that they have, you know, CRA legitimately will have a lot of, has a lot of personal information on you from social insurance numbers and stuff like that. But generally you have a code with CRA, like a personal identifying number that only you'll be able to get from the CRA. And again, uh, you know, the big stress is that there you, CRA is still generally going to communicate you through the mail, is going to send it to you. And anything that comes in that you don't know about is, is just simply you look up the number, you look up for the agency, and you ask them, don't call them and say, hey, I owe you money, how much can I confirm this? It is, I received some correspondence, what is it you're looking for, right, right? in terms of it, and by contacting them directly. And, you know, I had my own experience recently with my, uh, you know, I have an elderly parent, my mom, and she was in, involved with something with CRA. And uh, it was, although it was legitimate, it, it required, and some good thinking on her part was, not. She hung up the phone, called me, because yep. she's fortunate, I guess, to have a son in policing. <laughs> yes, and I call I, you too, Dave. <laughs> and I simply told her she did the right thing, and I, and I phoned CRA back, and I was actually critical of them calling her in the way they did and what they were asking, but they got it, right? And, uh, and as it turned out, it was legitimate, but it took a bit to, you know, as, uh, as we try to talk to people saying, when you get a phone call, just say no on the phone, hang up, and and if it was your bank or BC Hydro or someone, look up the number yourself and then call them and ask them if there's something they need to talk to you about. Excellent. Dave, what are some tips for someone to keep in mind, you know, or some warning signs of, of a scam? How does someone know, um, you know, that, that they might be at risk? Well, the first first thing is, is that you indicated there where it's like a dear taxpayer, where it's a non-personal type address to somebody, where it's like, you know, hey, Mr. Ac- or dear account holder or subscriber. Um, the other one is, is, is just unsolicited. Like, you know, if you've paid your bills to a corporation and you know you're paying your bills, is that all of a sudden you get something that looks suspicious in terms of it, um, it or it's unique that you never get correspondence from somebody, you suddenly receive that correspondence in terms of it, even though the letterhead in that may look legitimate. The other one, too, is, is where... Um, 
you know, you're going to look for, um, I would call, uh, foreign numbers, right, to return back to, or odd emails. You know, the, the government of Canada has a very, you know, set email structure in terms of how they how they respond. And I think about it like the RCMP, where it's always rcmp-grc-gc.ca. I know that, right? And we become familiar with it. When it says, you know, www.scam.rcmp. <laughs> that's not a legitimate email address right. in terms of it. And the other one too is, is is this whole idea of asking you for money or funds, and and I think of this like in the um, lottery winning schemes, asking you to pay money or put up money for something that you're not familiar with. I mean, that is the first telltale sign, right? Hey, you owe me money. Hey, you owe us this. Or hey, pay this because you won that. These are the just generally, um, you know. I'd hate to say this. You shouldn't trust anything that comes to you unsolicited now in that a, manner. That's a really, really good point to start with. Certainly, yeah. we've been talking with Dave Jones. He's currently chief constable of the New Westminster Police uh, Department and has been since 2011. Dave, thanks so much for joining us today. No problem. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. If you have any questions or want information about being in debt and how you can possibly help yourself out, sands-trustee.com is their website, or you can give them a call at 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation. On the line with us is Bethany Cam. She's a qualified insolvency counselor with Sands & Associates. She's got over five years of experience working in the personal debt help industry. She provides counseling to clients in the the Abbotsford and Langley offices uh, for the one-on-one financial counseling sessions, which is what Sands & Associates offers. Bethany feels it's important to provide help without judgment and says, quote, through financial counseling, clients begin to feel empowered with knowledge of money management and most importantly, Hopeful. And Bethany, I can tell you that Blair and I talk about that hope all the time in this show because it feels so hopeless sometimes when somebody's walking yeah. in the door. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the counseling sessions. Yeah. So Bethany, thanks for joining us today. Um, why don't you start off no just worries. telling us why do we have counseling sessions? You know, are, are these a mandatory part of bankruptcies and proposals? Yes. So they are mandatory. Um, they're required by the superintendent to attend two counseling sessions in a bankruptcy and a consumer proposal process. And the ad- objective of these counseling sessions is to help with overall financial rehabilitation. It's hopefully giving people the skills they need to ideally make a bankruptcy or a proposal a one-time occurrence in their lives. Okay, so you use the word, you know, financial rehab, so to, so to speak. So it's, you know, giving them skills and um, and techniques and tools to, to try to make sure, you know, again, it's, it's one time they, they come through the door. Uh, what's the structure of, of the session? You know, I often have my clients be really concerned, you know, is this going to be a group situation where, um, you know, I'll tell my story and everyone else will tell their story and we'll, com- you know, compare stories or is, is it different than that? Right. Um, so these are one-on-one private sessions. Um, it's not a group setting. 
we do find it is beneficial to bring someone um, just that shares your finances with you just so you can be on the same page. Um, often like, like a husband or wife, kind of, you think? Exactly, yes. Yep, common law, anything that, like that. Now, Bethany, um, what kind of, I mean, this has got to be a bit tough for people to walk in the door and have to sit down. How does it go for these folks? Well, it's a non-judgmental environment here. Um, we let everyone kind of talk, and I hope they go out of the sessions feeling very hopeful about their future and, like I say, their financial goals coming true. Now, I bet, I bet they do feel a lot more hopeful when they walk out the door. Yes. And, and Bethany, what, what topics do you cover in the, the first counseling sessions? So in the first counseling session, it is um, the subject matter is specified in the law for each of the counseling sessions. So the first counseling session focuses on um, how to rebuild your credit, when to get back into credit, what cards are available. Um, so there's prepaid, secured, and unsecured. So we go over those in a little bit of detail so people understand. Um, we also go over spending plans, like needs versus wants. And then at the end, I really like to go over people's financial goals and dreams because I feel like people tend to forget about their dreams because when you're in financial hardship, they just don't seem in reach. So I really like to come back to those goals. Yeah, and what you said there, Bethany, kind of kind of hit me when you were talking about the needs versus wants. You know, I've had some people say, right. you know, that's really everything. You know, it's it's always figuring out, you know, what can I afford to do, what to, what I love to do. You know, how do those discussions right. usually go when you're talking about needs versus wants with clients? Well, we kind of write them down and we kind of go over some questions and we kind of go back to the cash. Um, if you don't have the cash, you don't usually buy it. Um, but mm, okay, yep, we kind of go over some questions of what they might think is a need or is a want. And are there some surprises? You know, someone really thought this is a need, and as you start to drive down, you figure out, well, actually, it was more of a want than a need, and that, that's a bit of an insight, right? Yep, and also when they kind of realize, they say, hey, you know what? We might actually not need it right now. We can wait, right. even for Christmas or Mother's Day or something. So it makes it a little bit more special as well. Okay. And then you talked about, you know, financial goals and, and, and dreams. And, you know, Bethany, you and I do different things at different points with, with clients. So, you know, when people come into me, their, their big goal and their dream is just to, you know, make the pain stop, you know, to stop the collection calls, right. you know, to give them a sense that, you know, they're not a horrible person. They can actually move forward in, in their life. And, you know, sometimes they have some, you know, dim idea that eventually they'd love to be able to buy, you know, a house or a condo or something. I'm curious, yeah. you know, how are the types of goals that, that you sit down and develop with clients? You know, how do they align or not align with those types of things that people usually say when they start the process? Yep. So some are, you know, they want to get into a down payment again. They want their home. Um, some are, they want to have Christmas paid off. So it's not all put on credit cards. So that's a goal. They, they like having Christmas and they want to be able to have the Christmas presents for the grandchildren and, you know, their spouses and all of that. You know, it, it really ranges on on everyone, but there's lots of different goals. Some of trips because they haven't taken a trip in six or seven years. Um, so it really everyone's different. <laughs> Bethany, is there sort of um, a, not a set list, but some general questions that uh, the people come in to your counseling session with and and really want to focus on and get answered? Yeah, so there there are a few that definitely um, stand out to me. So uh, some of the common questions is, does it take seven years for them to rebuild their credit? Mm, um, does it? And, nope. <laughs> um, so it is 
six years after discharge is how long it stays on your Equifax and TransUnion report. Um, however, you can start rebuilding from the get-go. Right when you sign the papers, you can start rebuilding your credit. And those are the things we go over in the counseling session. So you don't have to um, wait, you know, a few years. You know, as you said, you can really start to take positive steps right away. Right. And that's very encouraging for people to hear because um, they're under the assumption that, you know, they can't rebuild if it's still on their Equifax and TransUnion report. Yeah, I really love that part um, of the thinking around a consumer proposal for folks that they're mm -hmm. automatically rebuilding their credit as soon as, as soon as they start because there's a documentation that they've taken action and they're taking very significant, important steps to, uh, fix this debt issue. And I just love, I just love that. I mean, that to me is part of the hope that you guys bring for folks. And then another question that they ask is, do their employers or their friends find out about the process? Um, and nope, uh, it is a confidential process. Mm -hmm. The only time a friend or employer would find out is if their wages are being garnished, um, so their employer would know. Um, and if their friend owed them money and they had them on the creditor list, um, then they would be notified. But this is confidential, so not everyone knows about it. Oh, that's great info, Bethany. And, you know, we're, we're down to about the last minute and a half here or so. Okay. I'm, I'm curious, uh, you've been doing counseling for a number of years here, and it's always interesting to me, what do people find really surprising? So I wonder if for a first counseling session, you know, what do you find that your clients are, are really surprised by that you when you relate it to them? Yeah, um, I think they are very surprised at how quickly they can get back into credit and start rebuilding, um, you know, their credit. Um, I find they're surprised at how common of a process this is. The insolvency, insolvency statistics in Canada for 2017 were 122,198 people in Canada wow. to do a bankruptcy and a consumer proposal. So then they feel like they're not alone. Um, and then the last one is, I think they're very surprised that their goals are achievable. We break it down into how much they have to save, how long they have to save the money, and we break it in down into how much they have to save each day. And I feel like people are very surprised and very hopeful when they come out of the sessions. Bethany, I think you must do some wonderful work with these folks because uh, you just ha you're so empathetic and you understand the process and you sort of understand uh, who they are when they're walking in the door and, and have experienced so many positive things. And Bethany is just one of the several uh, staff uh, at uh, Sands and Associates. Remember uh, the website, nice and easy to remember, it's sands-trustee.com. You can give them a call. It's a 1-800 number. If you're interested, if any of this information is resonating with you and you'd like some more, their number is 1-800-661-3030 for that first free consultation, as well as to find an office near you. Thanks, Bethany. Thank you very much for having me. Have a great day. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about on the show, make sure you check out the website, sands-trustee.com, or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030, for that free consultation and to find an office near you. 
So this segment is all about consumer proposals and the myths mm-hmm. and the myths that come along with them. Um, because there are some. There's some yeah. stuff that people don't understand. I mean, I still don't understand all of it, and mm-hmm. we've been talking about it for a while. So I think this is great that we're doing this segment. Yeah, and, and Elaine, I often you know joke a little bit. It's only a half joke. You know, My life's work right now is making people aware of this option because the people that need to know about it most are typically the people that have no idea that this even exists. And sometimes people have a bit of an inkling, oh, I've heard about this proposal thing, but you know what? That just couldn't apply to my circumstance. So they don't you know investigate it any further. Right. So I think today's discussion, let's hit it. You know, I think there's about five key myths that people tend to have, and maybe there's others our listeners will tell us about. But I think this will go a long way to kind of filling in the detail about you know what is this thing called a proposal? Um, and how could it potentially help me get out of debt without going into a bankruptcy? Okay, let's start. Let's start at the start. Mm-hmm. Let's start at the beginning. Um, let, I'll let you explain what a consumer proposal is. Yeah, so in the simplest terms, Elaine, a consumer proposal, it's a legal consolidation arrangement. So it's where you put all of your debts together, but two big differences from a regular debt consolidation. You know, one is you don't have to pay back the full amount of the debt. So we figure out as a trustee, we sit down and we say, well, what can you reasonably afford to pay back? And it's got to be something, you know, reasonable to the creditors as well. But, you know, often it's 20% of the debt, 30%, maybe half, you know, if you've got some pretty good income, but very rarely is it close to the full amount of the debt. So it's a consolidation where you pay back what you can afford on the debt. And then the second really important thing is, you know, you don't pay a reduced interest rate. You don't pay, you know, a prime plus whatever interest rate. You literally pay zero interest rate. So most people, when they come in to see me, the thing that really riles them every month is just seeing, oh my God, another 20% of interest annually was added to my debts. Like I feel like I'm just treading water. I'm paying $200 down and $190 is just going to interest. It's going to be there the next month. So once you file a consumer proposal, the target stops moving away from you. The interest stops getting added and the target is a lot closer to begin with because it's something you can actually afford to pay off. Yeah. So to give, you know, a real life example yes, for our, for our listeners that. here, you know, and these are numbers I see every day of the week here at Sands and Associates, you know, someone owing $20,000 of debt, which sounds like a lot, but it's not that difficult to end up in that situation if a couple of tough things happen to you. But someone at $20,000 of debt, if they were to offer a consumer proposal uh, to repay about 30% of that debt or about $6,000, that's generally going to be accepted. And that works out to a monthly payment of $165 a month over 36 months. And that doesn't include any of the interest. If the interest thing is the thing that bugs you the most about it, it doesn't. It, it's not. It's it's not a part of that. Well, and what's interesting here, Elaine, too, is if you were actually look at what's the minimum payment this person's making each month and how much interest are they paying, the whole proposal cost is less than the interest on the debts. So really, it's something that the person can typically afford. It gives them, you know, a sense of pride too, saying, you know what, I, I stared down this debt problem and I didn't go bankrupt. I did what I could to pay back what I could afford. And if you're thinking, oh, you know what, that just sounds. Far too good to be mm-hmm. true. Yeah. And you run into that all the time. Oh, yeah. And, and typically, as anyone who listens to this show knows, I'm a deep skeptic about things that are offered. I want you know, show me the proofs in the pudding. And you know, the proof in the pudding is that there's about 60,000, 70,000 consumer proposals every year in Canada that are filed, that are accepted by creditors. They're legitimate. Um, there's nothing too good to be true. Even though they seem that way, they are codified in federal law. It's an option. You don't know about it because essentially your creditors don't want you to know about it. Yes. Okay, so consumer proposal, and then there's bankruptcy. Yeah. Uh, are they 
How similar are they, well, or how the, different are they? That's the first myth, and you know, sometimes people come in and say, oh, I've heard about this proposal thing, that's just the same as bankruptcy, isn't it? Well, the answer is no. So first off, it's absolutely not a bankruptcy. The legal state of bankruptcy is something very defined in legislation, and this is not that. So if you do a consumer proposal, and if you're asked later on in life, have you ever filed a personal bankruptcy, you answer no to that question 10 out of 10 times. You absolutely did not. Now, where there are some similarities is both of these proceedings, they're only available through a licensed insolvency trustee, which is ourselves here at Sands and Associates. Previous to a couple years ago, licensed insolvency trustees were called bankruptcy trustees. So when someone is speaking kind of quickly saying, oh, you did a proposal with a bankruptcy trustee, it must be a bankruptcy. It's not. A consumer proposal doesn't reflect as a bankruptcy. It doesn't last as long on your credit. It's not as severe. Um, as a bankruptcy would be. And that's the other thing I want to make sure that that, y- that we add, that only licensed insolvency mm-hmm. trustees can do this work. Yeah. I have people, Nobody else can. I have people coming in sometimes telling me they're already in a consumer proposal. And I'm like, well, that's surprising. What trustee are you working with? Oh, it's this credit counselor I speak to on the phone. I'm like, well, you're not in a consumer proposal. I've seen that term co-opted a couple of times over, unfortunately. Unless you're dealing with a trustee, um, you don't have a consumer proposal, unfortunately. Now, you also included that lots of folks are afraid of bankruptcy because they think they're going to lose everything. Yeah. And that the process that you read about it in the newspaper or in the back, yeah. in the ads or the, you know, the old want ad section, so-and-so mm-hmm. declares declared bankruptcy. Yeah, so there's an element of truth to that. You know, it's maybe 1% of bankruptcy cases have to go in the newspaper, so almost all of them don't, but it's 0% of consumer proposals. So there's never a consumer proposal that's going to get publicized in the newspaper. Uh, what people are really scared about in bankruptcy quite often is that they're going to lose everything. You know, they think they're going to lose all of their assets. And most of the time they don't. As anyone who's listened to this show for a while knows, most people who go through bankruptcy keep what little things they had to begin with. But there are some things that they might lose. You know, if they had an RRSP for their child, for example, there's no exemption for that. If you go into bankruptcy, you would tend to lose that RESP. But if you do a consumer proposal, you're able to keep all of your assets. So a consumer proposal can typically allow you to preserve things that you might have to lose if you filed for bankruptcy. Okay. Um, what about length of time that it takes to either do or to, or to live through? Mm-hmm. And what's it going to cost me? Yeah, so these are all good questions. So in terms of the length of time, so I've seen some misinformation online saying, you know, proposals take at least five years to complete. It's kind of the opposite of that. There's a maximum term of five years on a consumer proposal. So the way a consumer proposal works is we sit down and we think about, okay, what can you reasonably afford to pay off on the debt? We look at the budget and find something that fits. And then we have to figure out what's an acceptable return to your creditors. You know, usually in the range of 20 to 40% of the debt is pretty good. And then we divide that over monthly payments. So if we said, you know, on the $20,000 example, we can reduce that down to $6,000. You know, the maximum term on that is five years. So you could do $100 a month over 60 months if you wanted to. In my client's case, they wanted to do it a little bit more quickly. So they did $165 a month over 36 months. So the benefit with a proposal is you can actually pay it off as quick as you're able to. So there's no minimum term on a proposal. Um, if things go great, you get, you know, a bonus at work or extra raise or things like that, make extra payments on the proposal and get it put behind you. But the maximum term it could ever be is five years. Okay. And is there a sort of, is there an average that you have in your 
knowledge, your experience? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. About 24 to 48 months is, okay. is definitely the sweet spot. So, you know, a lot of people, even if they file a proposal thinking it's going to take them 60 months, suddenly when they've got, you know, a lot more hope on dealing with their debts, they pay sure. things off far more quickly than okay. that. Most filings are in their about, you know, the three to four year range. Now, you also asked me about costs, Elaine, yeah, and this yeah. is something I'm thrilled to talk about because, again, if you look online, sometimes you'll see some misinformation saying that there's some upfront costs to file a proposal. You know, a trustee wants certain amounts deposited before they'll even look at you. And that's just not true. Okay, so, so how does it work? Yeah, so what what happens in a proposal is when we figure out what you can afford to pay back, the trustee gets paid out of that amount. So if it was the $20,000 debt that we're going to do a proposal down to $6,000, that's all the person's going to pay back is the $6,000. They're not going to pay a penny extra for the trustee. What happens out of that money is the trustee gets paid for trustee fees. There's some counseling sessions that need to be attended, so those are paid for as well. But there's never a separate charge that the person is given. Um, So whatever the monthly payment is the person can afford, one way to look at it is that actually the credit are paying the trustee's cost. Before they get any money, they've got to pay the trustee's fees to basically hold on to the money and disperse it to them. Okay. In terms of upfront costs, uh, we file a ton of proposals every week at Sands & Associates. Quite often, people will make the first monthly payments, you know, maybe $165 or $100 in those examples. Or if someone's had their wages taken, they've been garnished, they just don't have the money, we'll often file the proposals with nothing down. And then once we have the deal approved, the person will just continue to make those payments. But there's no large barrier to trying this out. You know, you're worst exposure typically is just one month's payment, which might be a couple hundred dollars. Okay, so it stay if it if it's twenty thousand dollars and you negotiate at one hundred and sixty five dollars, then it stays that. Yeah, and you guys get paid. You get paid out of that, exactly. and all the fees and all that stuff. So it really there's it's a no brainer. I would think from a consumer point of view, if they're waiting, you know, for the other shoe to drop, the invoice for the from the trustee, they're going to be waiting a whole long time. Um, there's going to be nothing separate the trustee ever charges. The whole point is to solve the problem, not to hit you with some you know mysterious charges that you weren't aware of until later on. Right, or yeah, uh, yeah, those the crazy charges that we know that yeah. does happen with with other ways of of dealing with debt. Hmm. Um, did you want to talk about the consolidating your debts with the proposal saves you both on the short term and the long term? Uh, well, let's talk about the types of debts that we can do, okay. Elaine, I think that's a really big question that people have um, is because, you know, a lot of the times if people are dealing with certain debts, they tend to draw a box around things like, you know, tax debt um, or student loans, specifically amounts owing to the government, um, because typically there's nothing you can do about those unless you're working with the trustee. So when I have people come in and sit down with me and they tell me all about their credit cards and somebody's in the last five minutes of the meeting, I'm saying, oh, you updating your taxes? Oh, yeah, I filed five years worth and I owe them 10 grand also. I got to deal with this first so that I can pay the government off. And then I stopped to me. I'm like, no, what we're going to do is solve everything. We can roll the tax debt in. We can roll student loan debt in. Everything can be basically included in a, in a consumer proposal. Now, there's some exceptions, things, you know, like child support, spousal support, the things that you should never be able to reduce anyway, they can't be included. But just about any other consumer debt can be compromised as part of a consumer proposal. So two things I want to make sure that, that we mention. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, that you're a licensed insolvency trustee is the only one that can negotiate that. Mm-hmm. What you're dealing with all the the government stuff, and um, and if I have uh, child payments etc that need to be paid, that gets. 
that gets um, included in the sense that you know about it. So you exactly. help figure out what the best total is. Yeah, so that's a great point, Elaine. If we're looking at someone who ostensibly their income is $4,000, but they've got to pay $1,500 in child support, I deduct that right off the top before I even look at what their budget is for debt repayment. We're looking at you know a $2,500 budget after support as opposed to a $4,000 budget. So it is taken into account for sure. Absolutely. So the other thing is that uh, consumer proposals are not the same as credit counseling programs. And you talked a little bit about that. Yeah. And the other thing I want to make sure, because we just have about a minute left in yeah, this there's segment. There's so much to talk about there this is, stuff, you know. About yeah. ruining my credit. Can you kind yeah. of boil that down for us? Yeah, I think the simplest way to, to look at it is anytime you take any steps to restructure your debts that result in you not paying the debts off in full, your credit's going to take a pretty significant hit. Now, it's nothing you're not going to recover from. And one thing to keep in mind is a consumer proposal, it's not as severe as a bankruptcy, but it actually hurts your credit the exact same as if you just negotiated through a credit counselor and interest freeze. So you paying back all of your debts in full but getting the interest frozen, that gives you an R7 on your credit rating. You paying back the part of the debt you can afford on a consumer proposal, that's also an R7 on your credit rating. You can generally rebuild within a couple years of a consumer proposal. I know we're going to talk about that in future segments, but don't let the credit rating be a barrier to you taking action. In any event, you're going to help me figure all of that out when of I come course. and see you. Yes. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So, this is one of my favorite segments that we do, the monthly client roundup. Sort of the stuff that you're seeing that's mm -hmm. coming across your desk, other than the clients that you're seeing, at least for this first part. Yeah. What's the, is there a change? What's Canada Revenue doing? Are they looking at people differently, or what do you think? Yeah, it's interesting, Elaine. You know, first off, we're busy these days. It's the busiest I've ever seen it. I've been at this firm almost 11 years now. Um, summer is usually pretty quiet, but day in, day out, we've got people just struggling to get in for meetings with us. It's that busy. So a lot of people are struggling. I feel like there's been a bit of a turn and we're kind of the leading indicator of, you know, where I think a lot of folks are going to have some challenges. So I'm just so great. I'm so glad that people are seeking help, though, mm -hmm. whether they end up using you yeah. guys or just figure out their own stuff. Oh, yeah. Right? No, if someone can figure out with a meeting with us that they're able to restructure their budget, you know, figure things out and they don't need to form for, to file formally, that's success for us as well. So yeah. we're happy with that. But yeah, it's busy days these days, which we're happy to see. Okay. So in terms of what I'm seeing these days, one thing really surprised me in the last month, and that has to do with our favorite pals over at Canada Revenue Agency. Mm -hmm. And the way I'm summarizing this is it seems like they've decided that the small fish are easier to catch than the big fish. And what I mean by that is I see people quite often who for, could be a lot of different reasons, but they might owe $50,000, $100,000 or more than that to Canada Revenue Agency. And CRA seems to be willing to work with them, you know, put together payment plans. You know, they're, they're kind of slow to seize assets as long as the person is in touch with them. But what I've seen in the last month has been two separate examples where Canada Revenue Agency has essentially thrown their hardest methods of collections at folks who owed less than seven, sometimes $8,000 of debt, and were just kind of struggling to get by on a monthly basis. So it really 
surprise me. And it seems to me there's a bit of a policy change on CRA where they've now decided, let's go after the really small debt taxpayers and let's hit them really hard hmm. with what's called a requirement to pay. That's what I'm going to explain to you here. Okay, do. So the document I've got in front of me, this was issued you know, on June 11th of 2019, and it's sent to a person's employer. And big letters up top says requirement to pay. And it says the following taxpayer in this case owed around $7,000. We're not talking $70,000. We're talking $7,000. And it says this requirement to pay from the Minister of National Revenue requires you to send us any money you would otherwise pay to the taxpayer. So again, this is to the boss saying the money you would pay to the employer, but do, to the employee, but do not send more than the total amount at the rate of 30% of each payment for wages or salaries. So the day this was received by that person's employer, suddenly he started working for 70% of his wages. 30% wow. got automatically sent off to CRA. And did this employee know that this was coming? No. This wow. hit him like a bolt out of the blue. Wow. Now, maybe he should have known it was coming. I don't know. You know, maybe he should have known, okay, I owe a little bit of money, so on and so forth. But if he had called me and explained, hey, I owe about 7000 I would have said, okay, usually you're not going to be quick to garnish you on that. Get the returns filed. I'll see you next week. When he came into my office with this, I'm like, okay, well, let's get you filed in the next two days so that we can stop this garnishy from happening. Yeah. Um, because what it's saying, you know, essentially the employer has no, no option here. There's liability here that the government says to the employer, if you do not pay the money that's required according to the terms of this requirement, you will become liable for the payment of this money. So if the employer chooses, hey, I want to be a good guy and pay your wages, well, they're going to pay out of their own pocket to keep CRA whole on that 30%. Wow. Regardless of the size of the employer, yeah. do you think? No, regardless of the size. I've seen it for small. This is a very sizable employer. Okay. Um, and you can imagine, too, what people are so embarrassed when they come in to see me is, oh, is my employer going to know? Are you going to have to call my boss? And the answer is no, unless something like this has already happened. Right. So if this has happened, I'm the person that can stop it. So a licensed insolvency trustee, if we file a proposal, if we file a personal bankruptcy, this requirement to pay has to stop immediately, but that's the only way to stop it. And your point in bringing this up is that this is happening faster. I've seen it two times in the last month on debts that one was 7000 one was 5000 Wow. So very surprised because typically this was for the big fish, you know, the 100000 or more, the people making a lot of money. Sure. Um, both these these points, these clients were earning between two and $3,000, and this made them unable to live as soon as 30% of their wages were taken. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you want to talk about a couple of clients that you've that you've had? Yeah, let's turn the page and, and talk about some success stories yes. here. So a couple that I'm really really thrilled about these days. Um, so one was a young gentleman who came in to see me uh, back in May here, and he had accumulated about $24,000 of consumer debt across a few different credit cards. Um, he was working um, in a hospitality industry, and he wanted to build a career there as well. But mm-hmm. as of now, you know, his income was about $2,000 a month. Right. So you can imagine about $24,000 of debt, $2,000 a month of income. He was living at home, which allowed him you know, to keep up on minimum payments, but eventually he wanted to you know, move out. And if he was going to afford sure. rent, there's no way he'd be able to actually clear this debt as well. Exactly. So we thought about doing a consumer proposal and we figured out, okay, you know, if he were to pay back about a third of the debt, you know, around $8,000 or so on a consumer proposal, his creditors would probably accept it. Um, He could move on and make a reduced payment of around $140 per month. Mm -hmm. So we thought that would be great. Now, 
he went home and he discussed with his family and it turned out there were some family resources there and they came back and said, you know, we were thinking of helping him to pay off this debt, but we think that's probably not the best idea if he could do this proposal. What if we were to do a lump sum proposal, which means the family would help to give some funding and then we could offer a lower amount than a proposal that would be monthly payments over time. It's just going to be one payment, which means the creditors would typically be more likely to accept it. So we decided to try that. It was just last week I received all the successful votes back, Hmm. unanimous approval from his creditors. Um, He's offering back in the proposal $6,550 on $24,000 of debt, so just under a quarter of the debt, and the creditors took that and ran. They were very happy to get that recovery. He does a couple counseling sessions, puts all this behind him, and then he can build his career without having to have all this debt hanging around. Now, his family might say, okay, this lump sum, we eventually want to be paid back over time. I don't know about that. That's between them. Um, But I thought, you know, if you're you're listening to this and you're saying, well, someone in our family is having a debt problem, the way to help them is to help them with a lump sum proposal, not to help them pay off all the debt in full. Because by going through this example, the person's going to come for some counseling with me. We've looked at their budget. We've set some financial goals. Um, This was a great thing to help head off this from getting any worse and maybe requiring a bankruptcy at some point. Exactly. And the counseling and all that stuff that this young person's getting is going to be really important. Oh, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. To never get for success. Yeah. Yeah. Good. And one more client? Yeah. So a second client, and this is another successful proposal I've just found out in the last week or so. Um, So this person came in to me and they had a complicated situation, but not that severe of a situation. What Mm. I mean by that, it was complicated because there were 12 creditors, 10 of them were payday loans, and they were all, you know, Mm. different interest, different fees, different payment dates. So, you know, every month this person was making reasonable money, you know, almost $4,000 a month after tax take-home pay, but they had nothing left because all their money was going every which way and all these minimum payments and they weren't getting out of debt. So the total amount of the debts was about $28,565. And this person, again, was employed, was working a good job, but just wasn't getting ahead. Uh, We were able to ask to offer a consumer proposal. And, you know, previously this person, if she added up all her minimum payments, you know, it was over $1,000 easy per month and she was treading water. We did a consumer proposal for $165 per month. So her debts were just under $29,000 and the proposal were offering them back 9900 which is 165 a month over 60 months. Over and 60 what months. I anticipate is she's going to pay that off way quicker than 60 months because she's going to be able to adjust her budget and, and kind of figure things out. But she was just over the moon completely when I said, you know, all these minimum payments, you don't have to do them anymore. And the proposal payment, she thought it'd be seven dollars $800. When I told her 165 she almost jumped out of the chair. Oh, I bet. And now one thing that really struck me as well is on this lady here, very sophisticated, again, successful person, but she didn't know her rights. And when she signed onto some of these payday loans, this was the first time I had seen, but they actually had her sign a consent to assign her wages. So it said, if I miss payments, I agree that you're able to contact my employer and take 30% of my wages. She showed me that. I'm like, this would need to be stamped through a court, approved in a court, so on and so forth. She said, well, no, they just told me I had to sign it. So one of the first things that I wrote was a letter to them saying, you know, I don't believe this has any force in effect. This is not a legal garnishee, but I wanted to get her filed as quick as we could. So then illegally, I could make sure her wages didn't get taken. But I think it was the payday loan company knowing this has no force in effect, but they don't know that. So I want the person to think if they don't pay, I will go and take their wages. So it's very manipulative, very covert. That's what I would say. Yeah. 
which we know payday loan companies aren't. Worst of the worst, in my view. <laughs> Thank you for saying it, so I didn't have to. <laughs> Fair enough. So uh, anything else you want to add? I just want to say, uh, you know, if any of this information is resonating with any of our listeners, because we know that this happens on a regular basis, yeah. folks just get into the, that cycle and, and, and needing some help. Go to the website uh, to ask to see some great questions and answers at sands-trustee.com, and then give them a call. It's one 800 661-3030 for that first consultation. It's And to find an office near you, and there's 17 offices now in British Columbia. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.